You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Marie Amthorshoot is an award-winning Brazilian-American playwright. She earned her bachelor's degree in theater and speech communications from Siena Heights University. She has taken master classes with Edward Albee, Emily Mann, Marshall Mason, Will Eno, and Arthur Coppett. Most recently, she took master classes with Beth Henley and Lauren Gunderson at the William Inge Festival in 2017. Her one act, Coming Up for Air, was featured in the William Inge Play Lab series, as well as the Great Plains Theater Conference Play Lab series. It also took third place at the Dubuque Fine Arts Players One Act Play Contest and Festival. Her work includes the full-length plays Neighbors, Lovers, and All the Others, The Other Sewing Circle, The Suburban Set, The Baby Journals, and Stuck with Lemons. Marie Amthorshoot, welcome to the Green Room. Well, thank you, Dana. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be on this podcast with you tonight. Oh, thank you. Marie, it struck me as as I came up with the idea for this podcast is that I wanted to know why people stayed in Omaha to do theater. A lot of times when actors in town and they have aspirations to go to New York or Chicago or Kansas City, Minneapolis, Seattle. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you are not originally from here. And your aspiration was to come to Omaha, Nebraska. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) Which was was all the more reason why I had to have you on the podcast. So, but before we get to that, we don't want to jump too far ahead in the play. Let's start with act one. (laughs) I love it. Where are you from originally? So I I was actually born in Brazil, but I moved to Michigan as as a young child. And I was raised actually in northern and southern Michigan, kind of split my time between the two. So I am from Manchester, Michigan. Super cute. And Manchester is located where to say Michigan or Michigan State? Oh, sure. <laughs> okay. So everything, everything for me is in relation to Big Ten schools. So. <laughs> I should have known. I should have known. Exactly. Um, oh, that's great. So I, it, it's, Manchester is about 45 minutes away from Ann Arbor. So okay. U of M side, but my family is hardcore MSU. Well. So of course. Of yeah, course. Beat up a lot as a child. It's okay. <laughs> So where did you go to high school? I went to Manchester High School. Manchester High School. And when you were at Manchester, did you participate in any theater? I did. I did. Um, I've actually been been doing theater for quite some time. I started when I was a, uh, about eight, but high school is when it really took off for me, when I really understood that it was probably something I was going to pursue professionally. And actually, I was I was an actress for for quite some time. And 
I loved it. I would do, you know, community shows in the summer. I did uh, West Side Story and Annie. And and then during my high school years, the biggest role I probably had was Dolly Levi in The Matchmaker. And I loved it. Oh, I loved it. You were an actress. Did you... Did you perform in any of the musicals as well, or was it just straight plays? Oh, absolutely. The musicals actually were were my favorite. I liked straight plays, but the musicals were my favorite thing to be a part of. I I loved it. Well, okay, so I'm just going to pause right here to say anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I always will ask like really dumb questions Like, right, like you just mentioned that you were in West Side Story and Annie. And what do I say? So did you perform in any musicals or was it just straight plays? I mean, it happens, people. It's it's a new podcast. I'm learning as I go. For anybody who pays any sort of attention at all, maybe I should just have a poll for on on my website. Thank you. Five pod dot com that lists like all of the mistakes that I make, like the very first, I know I'm just like going off on a tangent here, but the very first podcast episode with Camille, I'm reading the bio, which says as it starts a native of Omaha. And what's the first question I ask her, where are you from? Camille says, I'm from Omaha. And I went, really? I had no idea. I had no idea. So you like musicals as we get back on track. No, I love it. That's part of your charm. <laughs> That's why we love you. Okay. So you did musical. So you did musicals and you did straight plays in high school. Did you also perform in like, like show choir or anything like that? You know, Manchester was pretty small. I think we had a population of 5,000. We didn't have show choir. I didn't even know it existed until I was halfway through college And somebody mentioned it to me and I was like, what, what is this? And then they told me about it and I felt like I had really missed out. So, but yes, if, if I had had the opportunity, you bet your bippy, I would have been all over it. So you performed in the plays, you performed in the musicals, you graduated from Manchester when? In 2005. In 2005. Yes, ma'am. I have been out of school a long time in 2005. Oh. So you you graduate in 2005. And then did you go to college? I did. I did. I went to Siena Heights University. Which I read in your bio. Yep, that's okay. I went to Siena Heights. And it was really sweet. It was this small, private, Catholic college very intimate. And I went there because we went to a madrigal dinner there and my parents fell completely in love with it. There were so many nuns and they said, this is where you should go to school. And so that's where I went. Hopefully not to become a nun. <laughs> no, <laughs> dear God. No. <laughs> did you go to Siena Heights for theater or for something else? I did. I did. So When I was trying to figure out my senior year, what I wanted to do, there was just something that said, you really, you really need to go for theater. My father was encouraging me to either do a double major like business or something like that. And I just thought that's 
that's not it. And my brother was like, you should be a teacher because he was a teacher. And I thought, no, that's not it. I want to perform. And I was also discovering at that time that I wanted to be a writer. And so the, the itch was there and I just wanted to learn more. I was hungry for it, especially in a small town. You know, really all you have is the matchmaker. All you have are kind of these older, stuffier shows. And I knew that there was more happening out in the theater world. I knew that there was this incredible amount of just great theater exploding onto the scene and all of these new ideas. And I I was, Dana, I was just hungry for it. So, yeah. Did you do any writing when you were in high school? I did. I went to uh, Notre Dame once. I'll tell you if I can, a, a little story. I went to Notre Dame to the campus with my dad and we were walking around the bookstore and I found this really great book. And I think it's called The Playwright's Process by Buzz McLaughlin. And I I begged him to buy it for me. And he was like, sure, fine, whatever, because it was a theater book. And I was flipping through it and I realized, oh, my gosh, all of these plays that I'm performing, they, of course, don't magically appear. People write them. And I had been writing up until then poetry and prose And I discovered through that book that I loved writing dialogue, loved it. I enjoyed writing prose, but being just, it felt kind of one dimensional to me because you're just coming at it from one character's perspective, unless you, you know, flip the narrative around. But with plays, I thought, oh my God, through dialogue, I can, I can explore multiple people at one time And I can have 50 different viewpoints looking into a situation and trying to to solve the mystery of the scene. And that's how I discovered writing. What was the original question? I'm sorry, my dear. No, no, you're fine. The original question was if you had done any writing in high school. Oh, yeah. So then what happened is once I, I had read through this book and was working on dialogue, I started writing a play and it was going to be a three act about three different women who were going through pregnancy. And so each act was a trimester. And so I was working on that and I was actually dual enrolled at Siena Heights at this time. So I was taking an acting class and I brought in my little scene and I was like, a friend of mine wrote this. I don't know. She really would like us to read it because we're actors. And of course, that lie wasn't flying with anybody. They all knew that I wrote it. And so I was partnered with two non-traditional students in the class who were in their 50s and 60s. And one of the students, Carlene uh, Beth Staten, she said, Marie, I I love this scene. Is there more? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. And she said immediately to me, and it was the loveliest thing ever. She was like, hey, would you mind if I did this? for my senior project next year. If you have a completed script, I want to do it. And so we ended up doing it. But yeah, so that's when I was, I was what, 17? I would, because I was dual enrolled, I went home every day at noon from high school. And, you know, the days that I didn't have class, I could just go home. And when I went home on the days I didn't have class, I would just write. I would write for two or three hours every afternoon. It was heaven. Heaven. Wow, you're smart. (laughs) Uh, well, that's you were dual enrolled. <laughs> no, jeez. No, wow, that's cool. That was, was really fun. I'm not mocking you at all. Oh, good. <laughs> good. I'm really not. I know. That was a long-winded story. No, I <laughs> loved it. What was your overall degree then? Was it like a Bachelor of Arts, a Bachelor of Fine Arts? It was a Bachelor of Arts. So you graduated 
2009, 2010? Yeah, 2009. And then what did you do immediately after that? So immediately after that, I had no idea what to do. I, I felt really lost because I really wanted to go to New York, but I, I wasn't really encouraged to do, to do so. I was more encouraged to stay home and become a substitute teacher. And I thought, oh, no, that's not what I want to do with my degree. So while I was trying to figure out what the next step was, if I wasn't going to New York, I went and worked on Mackinac Island. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. So it's really cool. Dana, you would love it. It's this small island. It's eight miles in circumference. And it's between the northern and southern peninsulas of Michigan. They don't allow any cars. It's all horse and carriage or bikes. And I lived there for six months and worked in hospitality. Checked people in and out of a hotel. It was amazing. I mean, it was it, it was claustrophobic. Yeah. But amazing. Looking back now, would that be a good place to go to get away from it all to write? Oh, absolutely. And that was part of that was part of the joy. That's when I really discovered I was a writer, like really knew it deep down was we were allowed to go to the butterfly house every day for free as we were working in, uh, on the Island and I didn't have a laptop at that time. It, it was broken. So I bought a notebook and I went every day after work or before work, depending on my shift. And I would write in the butterfly house for an hour or two. I wrote an entire screenplay by hand that summer, just sitting in the butterfly house. So it's, that's, that's precious to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, do, do you, you're a writer as well. Mm -hmm. Do you, can I ask you a question? No, no, please. Did yeah. you, did you ever have anything like that or any moments like that where you truly felt one with the work you were doing by being able to, to be kind of a recluse? <laughs> you know, I, I've not done anything like that. I've thought about that. You know, you had mentioned not too long ago on social media that you would love to like go away somewhere and go on a retreat somewhere to just kind of go off the grid to work on your latest play. And I always found there are places here in Nebraska that are more like religious retreats. Uh, I'm Catholic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so, <laughs> so yeah. So there are places where, you know, where you can go for like a silent retreat or, or what have you. And obviously that's for, you know, it's supposed to be for prayer, but it, it would be fascinating to, to unplug from the grid for, you know, if you can afford to do it mm -hmm. for a long weekend or something like that, where no distractions at all, you know, you just have yourself, you, it could either be really positive and you could get a lot done or you would probably go stir crazy. You know what I mean? Or probably I think both. it depends. <laughs> yeah. I think it depends on where you would be in the process. Mm -hmm. It would be fascinating to try something like that at some time. Absolutely. And that's Absolutely. why I was thinking when you mentioned, you know, the island, I'm like, that just sounds like something that would be idyllic. There are bluffs on the island, you know, overlooking the lakes and it's so beautiful and so peaceful. And I remember just going out at four in the morning and taking a walk and feeling safe doing so, you know, and all the stars were out and, and watching the sun come up and well, you, you don't have the sound of the cars. So, I mean, it has to be. Just oh. silent and just... Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. Or, you know, you could... One of my friends lived on the island 
And she had a boat. And I remember going out to Bois Blanc, which is another island that's not populated at all. It's like heaven. It's like a little slice of paradise. And I think if anyone who could sponsor such a thing is listening, I think if you could create a haven for artists, please do so. Because I think that's what you had mentioned, the financial part of it. And that's very that's the the restrictive part for mm-hmm. artists. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be very difficult to to slap down, you know, $500 to go off and, and write. And sometimes that's all you need, though. You need a weekend of quiet. And I'm still looking into that. I'm still looking for a place to, to get away. And I think I found one. I just have to just have to do it. And this is kind of off the beaten path a little bit, but there used to be, and I don't know if they still do it, there used to be like a screenwriting there was a gentleman who held like a week long screenwriting retreat for mm. lack of a better term out in the middle of Nebraska. You mm. just have it for like a week. And it was, it was like probably like around 500 bucks or something like that. But you, you know, pay it. And I had, you know, I had, if I had been a little more in tune with, with screenwriting, it always seemed like a really, really interesting concept, mm-hmm. but I just, one, I never, at the time when I remember it was going on, I was younger and, and didn't have the money to do it. And then, you know, and then you don't have the time because you, you got to work and, you know, and all that stuff. But yeah, it was done in the summertime. So see, and I think you'd make an excellent screenwriter oh. because I think you're very, because you're a director as well. I think you're very visual, you're visually minded. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like you can put the picture together and it's interesting to bounce between those two mediums, which you've done, which I've done. I haven't, I, I, I have not submitted my screenplays and it's interesting because I feel more confident and comfortable in stage play work. I feel like it's so weird, but I feel like, like screenplays are for the big girls, but I'm a big girl. Like it's so dumb to feel that way, but it's intimidating to me. It's intimidating to me. So I don't know. I just have to overcome the fear. I think I understand that. So after your summer on the Island, what was next? I moved to Colorado. Uh, I lived in the Rocky mountains in this beautiful town called Vail. Um, I lived there for about four years. And again, I worked in hospitality. And then I discovered I was really tired of checking wealthy people in and out of hotel rooms. So I went into marketing and discovered that I loved graphic design and uh, social media, which is, which is interesting. It's a world unto itself. And I think It's an interesting balance that I've struck because as intimate as social media feels, it's not. I think it's, I think to a point it's completely void of connection, to be honest. Doesn't it feel that way? It does. It feels like I know these intimate details about people's lives that they would probably never tell me face to face. And that's just this whole world of social media that I'm wrapped up in and and I still do that. I, I'm a social media specialist during the day and a graphic designer. But I, but yeah, I worked in Vail for four years, just kind of hung out, did a lot of soul searching, played my ukulele a lot by rivers. <laughs> it was fun. And did you do any writing during that time? Oh, yeah. So that's kind of where Omaha 
started to come in, I was feeling really listless. Is that the word? It's kind of like restless. Mm -hmm. Um, I just felt it's really easy to float in the mountains. It is. There's nothing concrete holding you to the ground. And I started to really feel that maybe there was more. There was I, I had been away from theater for a while. I just missed my roots. And so I had remembered Omaha really randomly one day. I was like, you know, that town, Omaha. Um, I had I had come here for the Great Plains Theater Conference when I was 19 and fell in love with the the city and the people. And I thought, what a cool place. I really want to to live there one day. How did you discover the Great Plains Theater Conference? Do you uh, remember? I do. A professor of mine, Carrie Graves, she, when I was a freshman, she knew that I was very interested in, in writing and was probably going to be more successful as a writer than I was going to be as a performer just because of my love for writing. And she said, hey, Marie, there's this there's this theater conference and we should just check it out. And so I, I went with her for the week and I was blown away, Dana. You know, when you hear Omaha, Nebraska and you're not from here, I think a lot of people have this image in their head and it's obnoxious, but it's the image of like, oh, yeah, cows and corn. And and that's not it at all. You know, we drove in from the airport and I just remember seeing the, you know, that that skyline. And I was like, wow, this city is huge. And I remember seeing the buildings and the World Herald building and just thinking, wow, this is this is so beautiful. And I was I was just blown away by what I saw and and even more so what I felt when I was here. It felt like for the first time I was surrounded by this tribe of people who, you know, regardless of where we were from, we all spoke the same language. And even in college, I hadn't really, I didn't really, I felt that way, but I didn't really feel that way. And there were people who were two and three times as old as I was who were like, oh no, you have something to say. This is exciting. And I was just thrilled by that. I was thrilled by feeling included. And I think maybe that's why when I was in Colorado feeling kind of isolated, I was yearning for that feeling of inclusion. And I think that's what drew me back. That's what brought me back in was where did I feel included? And I was like, oh, yeah, this city. I felt I felt like part of something here. So I came back. (laughs) And in addition to coming back just because of the warmth and everything you felt, I mean, some of it obviously had to do with with the theater in, in, in this town. Absolutely. I realized when I had visited that first time, there were a ton of theaters here. And when I had, you know, and they obviously were very supportive of new work. And that was the big thing for me is as a writer, I needed a place who could understand how new work works, (laughs) how what the process is like. And people who in theaters who aren't scared of taking a chance because that's ultimately what you're doing. This isn't a a tried and true script they're working with. This is, you know, a writer and dealing with whatever temperament that writer brings to the table, rewrites, patience, collaboration. And so when I figured out they had the shelter belt, well, dear God, that's a dream come true, isn't it? So yeah, you're going to move for that. Absolutely. I always found it interesting 
that more people don't come out. I mean, I understand why sometimes you have a lot of people that will show up for a new works audition. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people don't show up. And I always thought, why won't you show up? You have the opportunity to create this character from the ground floor. You know, this is your character, Mm -hmm. right? It can go on and have a regional premiere somewhere and your name might never be in, you know, the finished product, but you were the person that originated it. But I understand sometimes it's a risk. It's a risk going to see new work. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, I think that's where I encourage performers, actors and actresses. You can always say no thank you to the part, right? If you're offered a part that doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mesh with you when you're auditioning, but you never know until you try, you never know until you walk into the room. And I'm sure you have found this to be true as a playwright as well, but that moment of discovery, even during auditions, when you hear your character say something (laughs) that you either had not heard out loud before, or you'd heard out loud before, but there's new subtext to a line. There's new energy to a line. There is nothing more thrilling and there's nothing more thrilling than in a, in a new work rehearsal period where you're all discovering something together. There's this life force behind it, this momentum and power and passion. And, you know, when, when you were talking about people, you know, being able to build a character from the ground up, I once told an actress she had she had done a reading with me and she was unable to do the the production with us. And I was I was heartbroken, of course, because I really wanted to work with her. But also, you know, if if we had worked together, then I also wouldn't have been able to work with the other actress I ended up working with and and loving them both equally. But I told her I was like, you will always be page to me. You will always have this part of the character. And, and she loved that. Actors love that, you know, and it's, it was very true. It was a very genuine thing, but, but that's how it is, is, you know, they embody that. And from then on, like Barb Ross, for example, a a very dear friend, I think to us both, we both loved Barb very dearly. Yes. Um, And she's, God, she's so greatly missed. But, she really is. But such a lovely light. I only, I was only blessed to know her for a few years. We didn't have very long together as, as friends, but she was such a comrade in the theater. Such a, such a big supporter of new work too. God, Barb, Barb went to everything. And Barb played Annie for me in the other sewing circle. And no matter, you know, what happens to that play, anytime I see it, it's Barb's, you know, like Annie is Barb's. And so much of when I was working on rewriting or even little tweaks during the play, I, I injected that character with her life force. And I think that will, that will always go on with her. You know what I mean? There will always be her in there. And I think that's such a lovely, such a lovely gift from an actor when they do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. So you moved to Omaha. I did. I did. Oh, everybody else moves away, but you moved here. <laughs> How did you break into the theater community here once you moved here? 
Well, I knew Sonia Keffer, who's a, a fabulous actress and wonderful friend. I actually had contacted her before I moved here to ask if she would help me with a reading and do a reading with me of a new play I was working on because she was uh, the actress that I worked with at the GPTC. And she was so gracious and so sweet. And she said, of course, of course. And she helped. She cast it. Um, and I rented a space at Mark's restaurant and we did it there. And so when I moved here, I actually I moved into her basement for like three weeks. Sonia, I hope you don't mind me saying that, but I did. She was so sweet. My uh, the apartment I was moving into was undergoing construction. So she let me live with her. And she introduced me to people. She said, you know, you need to meet Ellen Struve. You need to, you know, meet Bo Berry. You need to meet the people in town. And then I can't remember if she was the one who connected me with Beth Thompson. But Beth, who's the artistic director of the Shelter Belt, was one of my first main connections here. And I gave her some work and that really just kickstarted everything. Once I started working with Beth, I met just a ton of people in town. So was the other sewing circle the very first play? It was. It was. And it was done at the Shelter Belt. It was. And when was that? Do you remember? I think it was 2015 or 2014. So did you start writing that play when you were here or had that idea germinated with you a while back and you just found yourself writing it here? So I started working on the other sewing circle in Colorado. I saw some actresses because I was driving back and forth from Vail to Omaha because I wanted to see theater. And so I would drive in for a long weekend and go see something at the Playhouse or go see something at the Shelter Belt and then drive all the way back. And I saw, who was it? I I saw something online about women of a certain age in theater feeling like they were competing for roles and why can't we all be on stage together? And that's where I really started thinking about the other sewing circle. And it was, it was a group of Omaha women having this discussion. And I said, if that's how you guys feel, I'm going to write something for you. And it's going to have more than one part for women over 50 so that you all can be on stage together. And I saw Connie Lee, and Connie knows this story. Uh, Connie Lee is a fabulous, fabulous actress in town. I saw her in a clip for Snap Productions, A Paris Letter. And I thought she was phenomenal. I had not even seen this woman in, in a complete show. I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> pardon sure. me, I'm just going to interrupt you for one moment to say, yeah. I, I edited that video. Are so you serious? I did. Oh, damn. Well, see, you helped bring me to I did. I helped bring you to Omaha. And I thought I thought she was just there was such a spark to her. And the minute I heard her voice and and saw her in that clip, something clicked for me and I knew exactly who her character was going to be. And so I started working on uh, on that play and she ended up doing the the reading for me. She wasn't able to do the production. Actually, Therese Reynolds played the role in our production. She was absolutely wonderful. Such a, a hilarious, <laughs> talented woman. I, I love Therese Reynolds. And, um, but, but yeah, so it really, it was just a couple of different things that inspired me to, to write that piece. For those who didn't see it, what was the, what was the play about? 
So the other sewing circle is a play about a group of women who form a, a sewing and quilting circle. And as it turns out, they are all living with HIV. And that is what connects them. They can have this really safe space to talk about what they're going through, what, you know, different drugs are are doing to them, uh, how their friends, family, uh, lovers are are thinking about their diagnosis, what they're thinking and feeling about their diagnosis and where they are in in their journey. And yeah, that's about it. When you sit down to write a play, this is always the part that's that's kind of difficult for me is coming up with the coming up with the idea. How do you come up with the ideas for your plays? They appear. <laughs> sometimes it's just a line or sometimes I can see a character give another character a look on stage like in my head. And that just kicks it off. Usually it's like a radio for me. Usually it's just all of a sudden it's it's like something's been babbling in the background of your brain and all of a sudden the volume will turn up and you become very aware of like, oh, these people are talking and it feels like this current is just kind of like going through you. Anytime I have ever sat down to think of, oh, what am I going to write next? I can't think of anything, but I don't know. Writing is probably what just your subconscious. It's just kind of just like this jumble of bile and (laughs) (laughs) words that that you regurgitate onto a page. I don't know. What's your, can I ask you another question? Oh, sure. What, what is your process? Like, how do you think of things? I've always wanted to ask you that. You know, I never really think of anything unique and original, I guess, there's never like an idea that like pops in my, you know, that pops in my head. She's for, lying. Uh, Her work is super creative. No, but I mean, <laughs> but I mean for, and, and I'll give you, I'll give you an example. And I did an interview with Ellen Struve and you know, she comes up with some interesting stuff Ellen does. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I'm like, why octopus? You know, what, why? why? Right. But it works. And, you know, and. That's the way her, you know, that's the way her mind works. For me, it's usually it's if I have like a structure, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So when I started writing and I started writing one X for the shelter belt, it was for shelter skelter. So I had a theme. I knew what I was writing for. It was Halloween. So that was easy for me because I'm like, okay, I have a theme. Now I know I have a, a way to go. I have a path to go. And when it was, you know, the very first full length that I wrote was about domestic abuse, but it came from a Valentine show. I know it sounds weird, mm-hmm. but it came from a Valentine show. So again, somebody provided the structure for me. It's very rare that something will hit me like, you you know, like you said, like a word or, you know, or a phrase or something like that. It's very rare that something like that will hit me and make me go, ooh, I want to write that. Although I have something in the back of my head that's actually based off of one, a one minute video that I saw on Facebook a few years back. And I haven't really sat down to write it, you know, 
I know where I want to go with it and I just haven't sat down to do it, but that would be an instance where, where it, you know, it was something like that. But normally somebody, if somebody can throw something at me and say, Hey, can you write about this topic or write about this? I have something to go on. I, I don't think I'm very good at coming up with original ideas on my own. Well, I thought I, I saw before Dana and I really knew each other. I saw voices from the closet, which was phenomenal. Thank you. Phenomenal. And I think it's even more wonderful when you can see new work and you don't have any emotional connection to the person who wrote it, but it makes you feel very emotional. Uh, I remember crying during that one. And Nicole Hawkins had this glorious monologue. She Mm -hmm. was this Irish woman Mm -hmm. and she and her lover were trying to get into the United States. And I can't remember who was sent back. Somebody was sent back. The lover was. Um, And they never saw each other again. Mm -hmm. And when you don't know the person and you can see something and be like, dear God, that was good. Oh, my God. Like so moving. I thought that was an incredibly creative piece. Well, and I'll tell you about that piece in particular. That was a case of like you had said earlier about, you know, hearing your words and, you know, when the actors, you know, put a nuance to it that you're, you know, that piece was completely different when I first wrote it. And we sat down for the read through and Nicole did a wonderful job with what I wrote. And I said, oh, this is crap. (laughs) This doesn't work for me at all. Uh And I, and, and I said, just don't you and Michael and Michael Simpson, like, don't, don't, don't have rehearsal. Don't do anything. I'm going to fix this. And they, you know, and I don't think that they thought there was necessarily anything wrong with it. I went home and I rewrote, you know, I rewrote the whole thing that night. I'm like, no, 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 no. And it works so much better. And she did such a phenomenal, phenomenal job with it. Well, and I think that's the, the big part of new work too. And that's part of the risk is knowing that what you're going in with might not necessarily be what you come out with and present to the world. Exactly. Things, things change during the process, sometimes for better, mostly for better, sometimes for worse, because it's it's almost impossible to write a play by committee. <laughs> and once you start including other people into your little world, things are going to change. But you have to trust you know, and, and Michael and Nicole had to ha- have that trust, like, oh, she heard something that wasn't clicking for her. I mean, and actors, for the most part, are really great about going with whatever you need to. You just set it down and they say, OK, and they will pick it up and they will put it on their backs and they will walk the distance with you, you know, and for the most part you know, all of the actors I've, I've had the pleasure of working with and hopefully you have as well have not usually given me pushback too much. I mean, they'll have suggestions, but it's never like, Oh, for God's sake, that's so tinny. No one would ever, you know, right. (laughs) No one would ever do that. (laughs) I agree. I'm going to take a moment to ask you, you talked a little bit about getting too many voices for lack of a better term involved, but I do want to ask you, about your collaboration with Laura Campbell for Laheim, which was a part of a a show called Shattering the Glass that we were both involved with down at the Shelterbelt Theater. Was it your first time working with another playwright? And that's my first question. Next question is, 
how was that process? Sure. So I really lucked out there. Laura is a truly incredible playwright. She's been a semifinalist or a finalist for the O'Neill National Playwright Theater Conference, which is probably the most prestigious playwright conference in the country. And she certainly earned her spot there. Her work is amazing. She's also a beautiful actress. She can move you to tears just by just by looking across the stage at her scene partner. And so she already knows how to breathe life into characters and her writing is top notch. And so it was really easy to just step into a writer's space with her. We would go over to each other's homes and have Manischewitz wine and Sprite (laughs) cocktails. And we would sit down and write for about three hours. And even if we could get five pages out of a writing session, sometimes that's all we could do because it's very back and forth and give and take. When I work by myself and Dana, I don't know if you're like this, but when I work by myself, I think the most I've been able to get out of a a block of writing time is like 25 pages, but you were just, I'm speeding through it. You know, it's just, it's kind of pouring out of you at that point. And there's no one there to do kind of this checks and balances system with, but when you're collaborating, that's very different. And you, you worked on Shattering the Glass as well with Caitlin McClincy, correct? Yes. And you wrote, um, our, our process was, our, it was interesting because uh, Marie and I are both getting over cold. Mm-hmm. The process with Caitlin was interesting because we didn't really, we both had, she was doing, I think she was doing the Christians mm. at the time down at the Blue Barn. I think it was the Christians. I know she had something going on. I think it was the Christians. And so because of her rehearsal schedule, we didn't really necessarily get together to write, but ours took place in a women's restroom. Mm-hmm. I remember that. So our writing schedule, it kind of worked out because she would kind of write some interactions in the women's restroom and I would, Mm -hmm. and the two, and then we kind of like combine them Mm -hmm. and, you know, we figured out like a transition say, okay, well, from your story here to what mine is, let's put something, let's add another person to the bathroom Mm -hmm. in between. So our style was really different than the two of you because we really didn't get together in the same room. Mm-hmm. All of ours was done via email. See, and I feel like it, I'm really glad that I had that experience of sitting down and writing with someone because I've always wanted to do that. You know, if, if I'm ever able to write for television one day, I know that there's a writer's room and you have to be comfortable with throwing out an idea and then seeing if it sticks and if it doesn't, you move on. and. I I loved working with Laura because there just wasn't there wasn't any ego there. I think we both went into that process wanting the other to be really successful and placing a lot of trust and also being it was it was a little nerve wracking, I think, for both of us at the beginning, because we thought, how are we going to feel out this story with each other? Are you know, our is our process going to be so different that it's going to be impossible to sit in a room with each other? But she was a delight to work with. And I've also worked on the other side of, of that with the musical that I'm working on right now, The Break. My songwriting team 
is based in New York and I'm here. So that's more of what you were talking about, where they are taking notes and I'm taking their notes. And, you know, we have our final draft doc on Google Drive and we're just tweaking that continuously and sending each other things. And and there's something really exciting about that process, too, where, you know, was it a week or two ago, I got an email from them with a new song. And of course, I just popped in my earbuds immediately and I'm listening to this new song and I'm like, oh, my God, this is great. You know, and the fact that we can have this really symbiotic, I think that's the word I want to use, symbiotic relationship in different states while we're trying to create this piece together is really exciting. Let's talk a little bit more about the break, how it came about. You say you're working with New York writers. So you received a grant. Is that correct? I did. Yep. From it's Amplify Arts now, but it was called what before that? Before it was Amplify Arts, it was the Omaha Creative Institute. Walk me through the process of the germination of the break. Sure. So I had this idea in my head. I don't think it's been, well, it's now been probably about 10 years of this couple going through this, this separation. And initially when I had thought about it, it it was a little different than it is now. Of course, it was about George and Cindy, this couple, it was not a musical And in it, within the first scene, it's two couples getting together for dinner. And one of the couples, so George, announces that he is in love with his best friend, Harley. So it was always the characters of Harley and June as they are now. But George and Cindy changed because what I was finding when I wrote that first draft was that he made this big announcement And then this play didn't really have anywhere to go. It was just Cindy, his wife, being sad. And I thought, well, that's obnoxious. (laughs) Can't just have a woman crying and eating cake on stage for two hours. Well, you could. Well, you could, but I don't know how interesting it would be to watch. So I I set it aside. And at the time, it was called In Medius Res, which means in the midst of things in Latin. And I thought, okay, there's something there I kept coming back to, but I could not get over George and Cindy. So I finally decided to kill off George and Cindy, chucked them, just just erased them completely and said, I love June and Harley. June and Harley are going to stay. But now I have Nick and Amy. So Nick and Amy kind of developed. And as I was working on this, I realized, oh, my gosh, this is a musical. And have you ever had a project come to a screeching halt for a moment because you realize I have no idea how to write a musical? I'm a I am somewhat of a musician. I can play the piano. I used to be able to play the clarinet and I'm a vocalist, but I do not know how to put a pen to paper and write music unless it's for my ukulele. So I realized I was going to need help. And that's when I started taking some classes. I I attended some workshops at the Omaha Creative Institute, now Amplify Arts. And they were really supportive. And they said, hey, Marie, did you know that we have a grant that you could apply for? And they, of course, were announcing this to everybody. And I was like, I'm going to apply for that because I realized in order to 
work with songwriters, whereas I'm I'm not fine with it, but you have to be fine with not getting paid for a minute sometimes as a writer. You can still develop the work, but for what I needed, I, I knew I was going to have to pay people. And so I just was having a really difficult time finding people to mesh with in town in terms of song style and, and writing style. There were a couple of people I was looking at who they weren't necessarily interested in the script that I was working on. And I thought I didn't want to change the story. I had started writing this book and it was really working for me. And the script itself was calling to me and I didn't want to have to change any of that. So it just wasn't going to work out. And so then this is where social media is phenomenal. I'm a part and I think you might be a part of it too. the women in theater group on Facebook. And so... I had applied for this grant by the grace of God. They accepted it. They were really excited about the project. Um, I think that Amplify Arts really wanted to know that, wanted everyone to know that they were being inclusive of all of the art mediums and they wanted to highlight theater as well. And so I... You got the money. Yeah. So I got the money. I got the money and I was thrilled. We're looking at and so in theater. Yeah. So I was on the, the Facebook page and I put out an ad for a paid gig. I was like, you know what? I'm looking for a songwriting team. And so I had people from all over the country sending me in their work saying, hey, do you like my style? Do you want to work together? And so I interviewed a couple of different songwriting duos And that's how I found Sammy Horneth and Amanda DiArcangelis. And I knew they were special from the get go because Sammy told me I'm a lyricist. I work with multiple composers. Here's a couple of their pieces. Do you like any combination? And that's when I found Amanda and her music completely spoke to me. And I said, this is definitely what I want. There's something Sondheim-esque about what she does. And they're just such clever, clever writers, clever musicians. And I just knew, I just knew. And so they understood what I was trying to do with the book. And we've just been pretty tight (laughs) ever since. Tell me about the process. Sure. So the the process, I wrote the I wrote the book and I put I put windows, I'll call them windows, in for the spaces where I thought there could be a musical moment where the the story could be told, you know, through a song. And sometimes I gave mock titles. For example, the street lamp or the street light waltz um was the title I came up with. And I was like, I don't know what this is about, but she's falling in love and figuring out that she's falling in love. And so then they took a look and we, we kind of, you know, each sat down and, and they, they were like, well, we think this makes sense. We absolutely think that this song could be here. This works for us. This will help drive the story forward. And then they were all, they gave me great feedback. They were also like, well, this doesn't feel like a musical moment. This feels too book heavy. So it was just, it was so collaborative. It had to be. We had to be really open to working on this piece together in like a really new way. At least for me, they've worked with plenty of book writers and they've also done a lot of the book writing themselves. Sammy has written, I think, most of the books for their musicals. And it was just really interesting. It was a completely new and unique process for me. The difference between a staged reading 
of a play and a staged reading for a musical. Two very, very different things. Wildly. Wildly. (laughs) Wildly different. It's not easy for an actor to have to learn music anyway. It takes longer. It's more than just reading words off a page. You have to be precise on the notes besides giving the emotional feedback that you or the emotion that you want the audience to experience. I think you would agree with this. With any stage reading, of course, you're not going to be paid. The performers are not going to be paid for it. You know, the alternative play, you know, reading series at the Playhouse and, you know, the before the boards at the Shelter Belt and, and whatever they called it down at the Blue Burn, which it escapes me, but they have had some readings down there as well. But for a musical, I know because I worked on the break with you that there were a lot of hours that the actors put in off time. Oh, absolutely. I think we, we rehearsed three weeks, I think maybe, mm-hmm. which was a lot for a one night reading. But because there was music involved, the actors put in a lot of time outside of rehearsal to get that music right. Oh, absolutely. And it, there were some complicated, there's some complicated musical moments in the break, which I appreciate. And like, I, I'm not necessarily into the moon and June sort of music. I like it, but that's not what we were going for with this musical. And Amanda and Sammy threw them some tough work. I mean, it definitely paid off. And and we were really lucky with that one, too. We had Leanne Hill Carlson, who is, isn't she great? <laughs> I love Leanne. Um, her voice is so strong, and I think she brought a lot to Amy. Uh, and we also had Amanda Vinalek, who also- God, I'm glad you said her name, because she will always be Amanda Rounds to me. <laughs> I cannot say Amanda's last name to save my life, so- Amanda Vinalek, and she- Vinalek, good job, you. They were fantastic together. They were. But that is, it's not easy. It's not easy, and thank God- for people who are so dedicated to their craft and you can't fake it. You cannot fake singing. You really can't. You cannot, you know, it's not like you can fake acting really either, but um, in a straight play, but it's different. It is. It is different. And, you know, and Tim Vallier as music director did just an absolutely wonderful job with everyone and everyone in that show, everyone, you know, to a man in that show did wonderfully well. But I mean, even the amount of time when, and, and even just going beyond the break, we saw disaster together at, (laughs) at the playhouse and it was absolutely another, you know, stage reading of a musical. Mm -hmm. Absolutely hilarious. But the amount of time it takes, you know, to put something like that together for a one night only shot when you're volunteering shows the amount of dedication this theater community has. Oh, absolutely. For their craft. Absolutely. And I think, you know, Dana, when I, when I see like a one night only thing, you realize how magical it is. You realize, and that's the joy of live theater, right? It's lightning in a bottle and you only get that. And sometimes this even happens with uh, shows that have, have a much longer run, even like a month, a month and a half, 
some nights are just there's something magical about it that and you'll see this, you know, as a director as well, an actor will do something they have never done before and they probably will never do again because they didn't even realize they were so in the moment. And you have to capture that in your memory and and be like, oh, well, just be grateful, audience, because you no audience will see that moment exactly again. Exactly, because you never know, you know, I mean, and it seems weird, but depending on how your day went earlier can change your performance that night. Oh, absolutely. And so I appreciate, you know, staged readings and I think they're here to stay because, you know, production cost is extremely low in in cities such as Omaha. Yeah, the actors aren't getting paid. I I would love to change that because they're putting in as much, if not more time than the rest of, of the creative team. And I'm always amazed. I'm amazed when they show up. And I was amazed at auditions when people came in and I thought, if straight plays are risky, new musicals feel even riskier. Agreed. You know, especially with unknowns out of the state. And that process was crazy too with the break because we didn't really get to workshop. It wasn't, it wasn't, and, and the difference between a staged reading and a workshop is a workshop, we can go in and we can make changes. With a staged reading, because we only had three weeks, it was really, we're setting down the music and this is what we have and we can't really make any changes. There there wasn't really that collaboration going on between myself and the actors. I did a couple of, you know, rewrites and line changes in the book, but we couldn't really make, you know, these tremendous changes in the music because... We had, I don't even know how many songs, probably what, 15, mm-hmm. something like that. So, which is already a lot to ask of actors to learn in, in three weeks. You can't throw new material at them, you know, two days before the reading. So, well, you can, but it just won't be good. <laughs> right. Right. But they were, you know, they were troopers all. And I guess the, the, the great thing is that I walked out of that reading knowing exactly what I needed to work on. And you were so kind to record it because then Sammy and Amanda were able to see it as well. And so really the creative team and the actors are building the foundation and the base for what the second revision is going to be. That draft is, I'm excited. We're working on it right now. Where, where do you see the break going? What, what, you know, you're in rewrites now. We are. Yep. Um, so we're going to start submitting in April and May, hopefully we've been working around the country. I'm assuming. Oh yes. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. Every project is a passion project. Every project takes a ton of time and love and the submission process can be grueling sometimes, but I know how much work and how much love and how many late nights and how many Skype discussions and feedback sessions have gone into this piece. So I think just letting it stagnate would be a disservice to everyone's time, you know, who everyone who spent any amount of time on this piece. (laughs) So I, and I certainly don't want to do that. I don't want to, you know, disrespect anyone's time. So I definitely plan on, on submitting this sucker. When you're done with the piece and Ellen had said something that really, really struck me, which was 
you have to stop and think that every time a play is performed, it's like a miracle. Yes, it is. Oh, yeah, it is. Because the stars have to align and, you you know, you have to get the right people who are happy to be interested in it. Have your plays found life outside of Omaha? You know, they have for... Or you're still submitting, I guess. I am. I'm still submitting. Um, They have, like in Michigan, the one in college. I don't know if that necessarily counts. The, the baby journals. The one play that I worked on coming up for air has been done in Dubuque. Uh, it's It hasn't been as outside of Omaha as I wished it could be. I've been really focused on the Omaha scene. Unfortunately, right now, our new work theater is is a little bit out of commission as they work toward finding a new space. And that has really forced me to push my work elsewhere. Yeah. Submission cycles, man. And it is, it is a miracle. Ellen is absolutely right because you could have a great piece. And I've watched this happen with fellow playwrights. You could have an absolutely wonderful piece, but it has to be read by the right person at the right time who is into the work that you're trying to create. And, you know, God bless people who read new work submissions for major conferences and playwriting festivals, because I'm sure it's a grueling task. But if there's any hope in it, too, it's knowing that maybe this play that you've been crying and bleeding over for a year of your life, if it doesn't get accepted, if it's rejected, maybe it's just it wasn't read by the person who was ready to absorb it. And so you have to just move on. You have to move on when when you receive those rejection letters. And right now, I don't know if you're going through this, but the spring is when we get a lot of our our rejection and acceptance letters from the fall submission cycle, like the major conferences. So the O'Neill and Seven Devils and GPTC and I think there are one or two other ones. Now is when everyone is finding out how, how their work is being received. And it's grueling and it's heartbreaking, but there's nothing better than, oh, we are happy to announce or we are thrilled to tell you. Kind of makes it worth it. How long does it take you from idea to finished product? Whether that finished product, I guess the finished product is you put the keyboard down and say, okay, I'm going to send this out or I'm going to have, you know, people look at it. Sure. So it really depends on the piece. Sometimes it takes me 10 years from start to finish of I had an idea and then I have to keep going back to it because it doesn't make sense or I'm just not ready to write it yet or I'm lacking some wisdom that is needed in order to write the piece. And so I have to go through some life experience and then all of a sudden I realize I know what I'm talking about and I can write, you know, the play then. For the play that I'm working on right now, Stuck with Lemons, I wrote that in a week, which was the fastest I've ever written anything. It just was there one night. And I told my lovely wife, Danica, it's it's here now and I need to I need to honor that. And so I would lock myself away in our bedroom. I didn't even have an office then. I locked myself away for three to four hours a night 
and she would come in to go to bed and I would still be writing and I would try to like dim all the lights and blow out my writing candle so that she could sleep and I would still just work away. And it just depends on where you are sometimes with the pieces. Does that make sense? Like, and then what I'll do is like stuck with lemons was originally like 117 pages and I knew there was some superfluous stuff in there. So then I had to set it down for a minute, which is like a month. And then I went back when I could be a a little more objective about it. And then I went through and I cleaned it up to like a hundred pages and I'm like, I want it closer to 90. And so then I cleaned it up again and all in all, it's been almost two years, (laughs) I think. And now it's, I mean, it's going out and, and hearing things. And I will say this, and if we have to, if we have to trim it, um, depending on when this podcast goes out, so be it. But I'll, I'll tell you, Dana, because you're a dear friend. And and if I can share this great, that play I recently was told is a semi-finalist for the O'Neill. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. So I won't learn more about it until April, but that's really cool. Yeah. I'm pumped. That's good. Pumped. So this, the study of lemons, uh, uh, stuck, oh, with, stuck le- with lemons. Yep. Stuck with lemons. Stuck with lemons. Study of lemons. Oh my God. <laughs> I, I like your why title do I, better. Why do I always do that with your stuff, man? Cause I, I come get, up with I get it wrong all all the time. Come up with some weird ass titles. I no can, one remembers them. It's get funny. everybody's name wrong too. I get everybody's name wrong. It's fine. Doris. Doris. So can we talk about that for a moment? Because that's like one of my favorite Dana anecdotes. <laughs> By all means. So Dana is the director for my musical The Break. And we're having auditions for The Break. And she wants to hear uh, somebody read for this part. And she's like, oh, what about Doris? (laughs) And we all are like, who's Doris? (laughs) She's just making up characters. Just making up character names. But then Doris became a part of our show whenever (laughs) something would go wrong. Whenever something would go wrong, we would blame good old mouth breathing Doris. (laughs) Doris the mouth breather. And, and it, I think that's something I will always remember about that show. Well, so, so I don't know if I ever told you, (laughs) I don't know if I ever told you this. Doris was not the only character whose whose name I screwed up, right? <laughs> I, you're, I think you're right. I can't remember who yeah, else it was. I, like though. every like every name except for like Nick and Amy, I got <laughs> I got wrong. Like June was who the hell did I call June? I called her something. It wasn't like Judy or something. Yeah, was it was. It? it was like Judy. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I remember, I remember, like when when I asked uh, when I contacted Leanne about about being the role of Amy and I, and she said, um, cause she and Angie Fry are really good friends mm. and Angie was, was June. And uh, she said, c- c- you know, do you mind? Can I ask, you know, is, did you cast, you know, Angie? I said, yeah, you know, she's Judy. And you know, and I'm just <laughs> on Facebook, you know, like Facebook messenger. I'm like, yeah, it's Judy. I don't know, like two or three back and forth. And all of a sudden I'm like, or June. And she, and she was like, yeah, I wasn't, I was wondering who Judy was. She was like, I read it and I don't recall a Judy. Like, oh, every character, every character. 
I called Alex something different too. You did. And I think, I mean, we all got it by the end. It's new work. (laughs) Yeah, I know. But you know, but it was to the point where yeah, you really had to wonder if I had even read the play <laughs> because all of the names were wrong. <laughs> all of them. And the actors would just, we would all stand <laughs> there. And just look at me. With a dead stare. <laughs> I know it. Just being like, who? <laughs> and, and that's what I love, though, about working with the people that I work with. You have to come in with a sense of humor. Yeah. Or you're going to die. And it's just, that's what I love about it is that we can look at it and and not be like, well, she had no clue about my script. How dare you? How dare you? How dare you not know the names of my 15,000 characters and their backstories? And their backstories. You know, but I think that's the fun of of now, you know, now that I've been in Omaha for almost six years, it's so lovely just to have friends here. Do you know what I mean? It's lovely to be able to work with my friends. And that was something I was really excited about with that particular piece is I had a certain amount of creative control that I've never had before. And so I got to kind of hand pick and hand select everybody and say, oh, I really want to work with these people. Oh, I really want to work with this person, you know. And Dana, I had watched you on stage give some absolutely fabulous performances for those of you who were able to see Dana do Arturo Ui at the Blue Barn. You know exactly what I'm talking about. You you won an award for that for that performance, and it was so well-deserved. And so you really bring something to the table and being able to work with you on that one was a joy. I loved it. Oh, well, thank you. I really appreciate that. It's really interesting when you have like such a great rapport with people in this town, you have the great mutual respect for what they do and it makes everybody want to work harder. It makes everybody want to work harder because we all want to see each other succeed. You know, not only here, obviously, but elsewhere. The O'Neill, I think, is great. And, ho- you know, and hopefully with the revisions that you've made with the break that you'll be able to, you know, send that out and submit that places and be able to travel somewhere and actually see somebody else, you know, see somebody else do it. And that's what I'm waiting for. That's where I want to see my career go is I want to, as exciting as it is to have creative control and to be able to collaborate, I want to know that my babies can walk without me that they can have a life force of their own without me having my fingers in all of these different aspects and being able to work with costume designers and being able to do this, that, and the other. I love that. Don't get me wrong. And it's very special when I can be in the room to do that. But I mean, that's the big dream for me, you know, is being able to have it live elsewhere and see what the actors do with it or the director You know, the playwright that I am most envious of is Shakespeare, because I think of how many productions I have seen of his work and they are all so wildly different. You know, people will set it in space. People will turn it into a musical. People will do this, that and the other. And he gets no residuals. And he gets poor man. (laughs) But his work is will never he is never going to die Shakespeare will never die and he can rest in peace knowing that 
he made it. His work made it no matter what you do. Well, I can't say no matter what you do, because I have watched some (laughs) terrible Shakespeare in my life. Not here, of course, but, you know, (laughs) I've watched some very questionable productions of of things. And God help us all with Titus Andronicus. But, um, (laughs) you know, but being able to look at that and be like, you could do 50,000 things with this production. It's still going to be a great production, hopefully because the writing is so solid. That's what I want somebody to say about my work. You know, maybe not set it in space. I don't think you could put the other sewing circle in space, but uh, you you could do a production and say, she's got it. She has something special here. Marie, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, thank you, Dana. It's always so delightful to talk to you. And I I loved our time together. Mutual Admiration Society. Oh. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 That's the other dog.